So renunciation is really interesting. And I just sort of follow my intuition on this whole thing. And it really hit me a week or two ago that this would be good to explore. And then interestingly, about 10 days ago, I had, I was invited to an iftar. And uh, some of you may know what that is. That's the, uh, and during Ramadan, the month of Ramadan, there's two meals. There's one before dawn, which has a name I can't remember. And then there's one after sunset, which is called iftar. And so every day, iftar is a big deal. And they pray, they wait till sunset, they pray, and there's this whole ritual around it. And it's a very sacred, a very sacred time. So this was a, a, a Muslim organization. I think it was the fourth one I've been to. Um, and so there were some guests and different stuff and an MC. And the MC was really cool. She was she was a, a woman, very somehow very tuned in. She was very deep the way she related to what she was talking about. So we ended up having this conversation. Um, and I've been around Muslim people quite a bit in interfaith work. It was the first time I've ever had a, like a real mind-to-mind contact on a spiritual level about without our traditions being any kind of problem. It was amazing because it's 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 Muslims. It's hard for them to understand us because they're really theistic. And so Buddhists are really confusing for, for Muslims. And so it's just, a, it's really hard to do, but we did it. It was really amazing. I don't know how we did it, but we just somehow, we just dialed in and had this wonderful exchange. And the question of renunciation kept coming up, woven into this exchange in different ways. And partly because, you know, they'd asked me to talk and I talked a little bit about I was like, you're fasting, but about monastics and how they handle food was the closest I could get to what they do in Ramadan. And she'd just been fasting and she was fasting for a whole month. And, you know, she had a headscarf that she'd started doing when she was 17 on her own. She grew up in the United States. But what was really interesting is the way, from a Dharma point of view, we see renunciation and the way she saw renunciation were just the same. It was so amazing. And uh, what was important and what wasn't and how... All the tinsel of uh, like consumer culture just takes one away from the sacred, and and how life is short and don't waste it. All those kind of key themes. It was really wonderful. So it kind of uh, kind of brought us alive in a, in a new, different way. How universal this is, and really the kind of way it's approached in the Dharma wasn't different. And since we're starting off with different traditions, I'm going to start with a quote from Ramakrishna. Some of you may know the great. Uh, Hindu master of the late 19th century. It's an amazing book, by the way, The Gospel of Ramakrishna, if you're ever so moved. It's a day-by-day rendering of what he did. It'll say August 23rd, 1883. And everything that happened on that day, this guy had an M who would hang around with a photographic memory. He wrote it all down. It's really amazing what he did. But he said, he was asked uh, about how to succeed on the path in a busy world. And he said, One succeeds if one develops a strong spirit of renunciation. Give up at once with determination what you know to be unreal. I just love that sentence. Give up at once with determination what you know to be unreal. And it kind of fits how we do it. It's a real essence of it, I think. And he's just very blunt. Uh, So tonight we're going to be exploring kind of the, the, the turning away from or the shedding of that which doesn't matter, that which obstructs us that aspect of renunciation. And, you know, we need to have some determination because things can seem alluring, the stuff that we want to get involved in. But at the same time, it, it, it self-clarifies and we start to realize that those things which would confuse us are unreal. 
and then it's sort of, it becomes easy. So it's one of those things that's hard and then it becomes easy. And then next week we'll explore how this renunciation is in fact a, a, a clear way to look at the avenue to awakening. It's, it's a way to understand what the Buddha taught about how this moves toward Nibbana. So part of why this whole subject is challenging for us Westerners is, you know, our Judeo-Christian heritage and these all medieval images of self-denial that are kind of down in our historic psyche. Uh, so we can think of it, renunciation, solely as giving up what we really want, that which, that which would be fun, and to do otherwise is wrong and sinful. And that's just kind of like a harsh way to look at it. It doesn't really help on the path. And it does seem kind of wretched from that point of view. That's it. That's yuck. <laughs> you, know, you know, everybody, I mean, everybody I know, not every, many people I know who went to Catholic school remember angry, angry, uh, nuns <laughs> because of that, maybe. I don't know. So it's not, it's different than the path of Dharma. It's kind of, it's kind of the opposite. It's not like it's, it's giving up that which does not matter, that which we know to be unreal. And we do that because from that we know greater happiness emerges. This is really a blessing, what renunciation is. The Buddha said in Samyutta Nikaya 22.33, he said, Whatever monks is not yours, abandon it. When that is abandoned by you, this will be for your welfare and happiness. For your welfare and happiness, right? So how, how cool is that? And this gets back to this conversation with a Muslim woman because she was a spiritual being. And, you know, she ta- they, they do during Ramadan, they don't do entertainment, they don't do sexuality. Um, so they really, they really dial it in. And she was just kind of so relieved. She was just glowing with a kind of freedom. It was pretty cool. And, and actually the whole, the whole gig was pretty nice. It was, a, it was a very nice gathering. So on the path of Buddha Dharma, renunciation is a mixture of letting things go and then as things progress, things fall away. So part of it is something we do and then it just kind of happens. So the letting go part, it can take some decision and willpower, some discernment, and the falling away part, it just happens by itself out of practice over time. We change and they're interconnected, interwoven. And to be able to see them clearly helps us navigate it. And they're both rooted in the path of practice. They're both rooted in practice. And it takes us toward freedom, you know? So it's not a grim thing at all. It's like a doorway. It's a letting go of that which binds us, that which obscures. The Buddha said, the mind is luminous, obscured by visiting defilements. That's in the numerical discourses. So, you know, how could we want to do anything other than let go of that which obscures the luminous nature of mind? And so this kind of clarifies the simplicity of this. We're not, you know, in the path, we're not constructing anything. We're not achieving enlightenment. We're rather recognizing something that's underlying that we just don't see because there's stuff in the way. The practices, letting go, letting go, letting go, and in mindfulness practice, stuff comes up, stuff comes up, and gradually, gradually, as we're more and more aware, it's less concrete, less grabbing, less diverting, and we start to relax into seeing. 
So it's kind of a peeling back and how we navigate renunciation in terms of our, the life we live is part of that. So it kind of isn't a chore, but kind of a freeing, like a loosening of bonds, like a peeling away of limitations. And, you know, our obscurations, maybe they're accumulated from many lifetimes. So that's why it's a, can be a heavy lift. You know, our conditioning can be really deep. But I just always love that sense of luminosity and it can be revealed. So it, looking at it through this, you know, and it's funny with the Dharma, you kind of look at things from different lenses and different viewpoints and things can look different and then it helps illuminate how it's very holographic in that way. So there's a way in which thinking about renunciation sheds light on three of the perhaps lugubrious lists in the Dharma. The, and there are three lists of five, the five precepts, the five hindrances, and the five skandhas. And these are all lists of kind of conditions. And it's a way to think about this. And so the maybe the most immediate context would be renunciation. Shedding through renunciation comes from the five precepts, which are the ethical standards, sila, of how we live. And for lay people, these are kind of things that we might instinctively want to do, but the Buddha suggested that it's actually not helpful. So it doesn't mean it's wrong or bad or evil. It's just not helpful on the path. And we get a chance to, oh, maybe not do that instinctive, reactive, grasping thing. And most of you know the list. It's, it's, it's always framed as a training. Training and not killing. Training and not stealing. Training and avoiding sexual misconduct. Training and avoiding abusive intoxicants. And training in not lying. So we, we train in all these five. We, you know, we do them a little bit here and there, but we do them less and less. The more we train, it's not a problem when we do them. We just keep learning. And, you know, we may be tempted to do these things. Like, I don't know, the extra pen from the office storeroom that you take home or one too many beers after cycling, you know, subtle stuff, not like big, but subtle stuff. And you kind of know, you know, what, what, what do I want to do there? And maybe we had a gut that it wasn't helpful, but there was this little tingle. So it's kind of a payoff. But then as this gets subtler over time, you know, because if we're, if as much as we really have turned our life towards freedom, then, and we know life is short, we know there's no time to be wasted, then we start to wonder, well, I don't know about that pen, you know, because this little thing happens. And maybe we're not, you know, well, I mean, when we wanted something, you know, a little, I don't know, a buzz of inebriation, a sexual high, this little buzz from getting something for free, whatever that is. But over time, we bring light into it, and that doesn't seem so useful. You know, we start to unbind from any kind of grasping that would have us kind of put ourselves before someone else, which is generally what all those precepts are about, putting ourselves first to get some kind of gratification. And often it means at someone else's expense, even if it's a giant corporation, you took their pen. But nonetheless, there's that exchange. 
So the more we can see it in terms of this is where you can, you know, it's a way to look at the precepts in terms of renunciation, in terms of this whole sense of freeing ourselves. So then we're unbinding ourselves the more we're attentive to this, the more we do that fine line of how we, the choices we make. And the five hindrances, grasping, avoidance, restlessness, sloth and torpor, and doubt, and they tend to be places where we're kind of stuck in a loop of selfing. You know, where something grabs us and, 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 and we, we kind of, we kind of want it. We get stuck there. It's a lot of selfing around the hindrances. And they're called hindrances because they get in the way of awareness. They hinder us from being aware. They hinder us from our practice. They, they block our recognition of what's happening moment by moment. And so there's an element of renunciation in terms of how we approach those. You know, it's the way we free ourselves is a kind of letting go. My, my wife just entered the room, so I got diverted. What a surprise. I hope I didn't forget something. Like, really, this would be a new way to get in trouble, but anyway. Yeah, I'm taking my jacket off. Hi, honey, welcome. I wish you can't hear me yet. Uh, that's pretty funny. That's never happened before. Uh, so, and then the last of these three is the five skandhas or aggregates. And, and they're, you know, they're about the stickiness of selfing. This form, vedanas, perception, volition, and consciousness. It's, it's those factors that make up our sense of self. And the more we can be aware of those rather than lost in them. There's a, there's a renunciation there. There's a letting go there too. And then we're not so stuck. So it's just a way to navigate these. It's not, not the only way, but it's a window to work with them. It's all different ways of stickiness and, and letting, letting go. Just not getting stuck there. Cause ultimately it's, it's us nowhere to adhere to any of these in, in terms of the skandhas. In some Yuta Nikaya 2226, the Buddha said, the pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on form. This is the enjoyment in form. That form is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change. This is the danger in form. The removal of desire and lust, the abandonment of desire and lust in regard to form. This is the escape from form. So the freedom from form. And he goes through all five, all five precepts like that. So you can kind of see in all of this how it's tied with our mindfulness practice. You know, because when we're really paying attention moment by moment, then especially in terms of the choices we make, we're often aware you can see the flicker of energy like, oh, how you can see how it changes us. You can see almost like a if you if if we reach out for something that we want that actually belongs to someone else. You can see a little shade of darkness happen, a little concretization of self happen. It's really subtle, but over time, it gets clearer and clearer. So you can see how our mindfulness practice, it helps guide us into, into releasing, into renunciation in the subtle level. So it's, it, over time, it gets more and more delicate. 
and 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 you know maybe maybe we took the biggest piece of pie when the plate was being passed around, or maybe we sped up our shopping cart just a little bit to get ahead of someone else in the checkout line, or maybe when we were talking to someone we care about and we omitted some little fact about the vacation planning that would tip the decision a little bit toward the experience we wanted to have, you know, all these little things that you can become more aware of and just see through them and not get stuck there and see the freedom that opens up from it. So it's all kinds of renunciation, just those little things because we're letting go of that which we might grasp. And we could be oblivious about those kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of people are. It's the way of the world. People with power, they run over other people. They get what they want. That's how people, they're shielded by their obliviousness. But as we cultivate our practice, as we see more clearly, then all this stuff becomes clearer. And to have the, to understand things in, tool of, in terms of renunciation and that being a tool of freedom can really help us make decisions about what we do in body, speech, and mind and how we conduct ourselves, you know, because that's part of the practice. We only sit in our cushion for an hour or whatever we do. rest of the time we're out in the world making choices with people. And, and you know, whenever those moments arise in which we might put ourselves first, we can see there's a grasping itself there. You know, and if this practice, if the three characteristics is about seeing through, seeing not self, seeing that there is no inherent self, if we're putting ourselves first, we're going in the opposite direction. You know, we're confounding the very thing we want to see. So this little darkening of energy, and you can see that when other people put themselves first, you know, you can see this kind of like they're acting greedily. You can see it. You can feel it. So this is such a subtle matter in our practice. And and sila becomes self-evident, you know? It just becomes so obvious that, that, that crossing the line, even in a subtle way, even in a thought way, will, will not be helping towards awakening. And if it's just going to get us a thing or a position which will be fleeting and gone, what's the point? What's the point? So it is this outer renunciation of dropping our outward behavior gradually becomes an inner renunciation. It becomes part of awakening. We'll t- be talking more about that next time around. But it's really beautiful to see how our mindfulness practice, it just dissolves the inclinations towards grasping things or even grasping after experience that we might have had. So it changes us. And, you know, we train in our practice, mindfulness practice, the second uh, foundation of mindfulness is pleasant and unpleasant. So we train to be aware of pleasant and unpleasant. And there's nothing wrong with either. You know, just experience. Ice cream is pleasant. Toothache is toothache's unpleasant. Sexuality might be pleasant or not. <laughs> Heartache is unpleasant. The fresh Breeze is pleasant. All those things, they come and go. We just know what they are. But grasping at them, trying to get more of them, trying to get more of them, especially at someone else's expense, that's the problem. So the more we see this, the more grasping and aversion, they just fade away. And this leads us into equanimity. And we can see how equanimity is so clearly based on wisdom. 
how an equal view of things, seeing through the wanting or not wanting, it takes us right through it. So it's real powerful how this works. And it can be a little odd, you know, in worldly life. I was <laughs> just talking about myself for one second because I had this sort of puzzling little journey around sailing, sailboats. I grew up, I grew up in Long Island Sound, grew up with sailboats. I love sailboats. Thought I was going to be sailing all my life. I'm, I'm, I'm very good at sailing. Stick me in a boat with a tiller and I can sail it well. It's lovely. It's wholesome and all that. And I don't care anymore. I just don't care anymore. It's, it's like I'm almost baffled because it was so much a part of who I was growing up. And I don't, I go to zero lengths to get sailing to happen. Not to mention spending tons of money to buy a boat and all that kind of ridiculousness. But it's just like, it, it, it's, it's, it's a running joke in Dharma circles. And maybe a show of hands, like how many people have noticed the way in which some of the things that used to be really engaging, interesting, aren't so, so much so anymore. Anybody, anybody out there? Yeah. I've got some hands here. I can see yeah, I'm seeing lots and stuff. Yep. It changes us. It's funny, but it's good. So I've had the privilege because I've learned a lot from monastics in the last, well, I've been around monastics for many years, but especially the last few years with Clear Mountain Monastery being here and I've been around the Ajans a lot, especially Ajahn Nisabo. Um, and I've seen how deep their renunciation goes and how areas where most people would kind of be a, normal to be attached, it's just fallen away. It's like it doesn't even register. It's not like they're struggling to let go. It's just they don't, they just don't, they sort of don't care anymore. And so if we can really learn from that. I mean, it's one of the beautiful things that we can learn from monasticism is that there's freedom and joy from this. It says in the Dhammapada 290, if by surrendering a slight happiness, one may realize a great happiness, the wise man or woman should give up the slight happiness considering the greater one. I mean, how's that for a simple formula of how this works? And these monks, they got this kind of inner happiness, kind of a glow. And you see that this inner happiness does not, is not hinged upon optimal conditions. I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's like no food for the day. Go down in the arms around seven in the morning. No one shows up. No food. Oh, well, same glow. Or a broken foot so that one has to hobble through winter rainstorms for months on crutches to get to arms round, which Ajahnisabo had to do. And I would be there in January with rain pouring down. I see this hobbling figure. And then I realized how far he had to walk to the ferry on the southwest side. It's like a mile and a half at, you know, five in the morning, pouring rain on crutches to get to the ferry. And he's just like smiling. <laughs> it just didn't matter anymore. So it's just really pretty profound. And, you know, it's a gift for us. So in comparison, the other day I go, I go to a gym and I saw a guy pulling his Lamborghini SUV out of the gym parking lot. And these things, $230,000, zero to 16, less than four seconds, 650 horsepower. And you hear it snarling. This dude did not look happy. I mean, he was, I don't know if he was wound up and how much power that thing had, or he had to go somewhere, or he was just, he was like, he was an unhappy dude driving by me with his snarling, fierce, incredibly, insanely expensive car. And it was like, wow, you know, you could renounce a little bit and you might enjoy it more. So that's the car of his dreams was a better, worth shedding, maybe. 
one might say. In Amashram Nikaya, the Buddha said, Household life is crowded and dusty. Life gone forth is wide open. It is not easy while living in a home to lead the holy life utterly perfect and pure as a polished shell. And to be sure, that's why people become monastics. But we can take that in. And how do we live? How do we choose? It doesn't have to be. It's not black and white. It's not black and white. It's really, I mean, people could be a monastic wearing robes and be all, have all kind of problems. And people can be not wearing robes and live a very unfettered, giving free life. But it's, this is helpful to know. Think about that. Think about our renunciation. Because here, 21st century, you know, consumer culture, I mean, we are trained, right? I mean, the industrial military complex <laughs> is training us to get the best experience, the fastest car, the best digital device, the whole deal. And that's not bad, but it just isn't satisfactory. And we certainly can't take it when we die. So, you know, kind of hold this lightly with open hands and do what we got to do without grasping and just let go, let go, let go. And look at the places where we want something and then look at that, sit with that, let go, see where, see where the letting go, the renunciation takes us. But it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful theme that's really helpful. And over time, as you just heard from the show of hands, it gets easier and more automatic and love replaces it. So like much of Dharma life, I'm almost done. Renunciation is hard in the beginning and easy in the end. And that's how it unfolds. And this is not a difficulty or a loss, but a journey toward awakening. That's it for a moment.